Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Second Corinthians study. I hope you've had a great week in the Word and getting all these amazing truths that when we slow down to really go in-depth into digesting all the things that we see and applying into our lives, just really open up these treasures that we just, if you read it fast, can be easy to miss the depth that we have. And I'm so grateful for the living Word of God. It really is a living letter that affects us today, even as much, or if I may say, as more more so uh, in our own current age and time. So we want to welcome everybody back. And I want to just thank Cindy Kickline for doing such a great job on the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to get started going through chapter two. And uh, before we do, though, I just want to say a little prayer and um, asking God to help us in our study time today. Father, I want to thank you for your rich and living word. I want to thank you for the Apostle Paul, who was willing to suffer much to bring the word of God to the point that I know that a lot of us here in the Western Hemisphere um, can thank and trace our lineage back to this great man's work. And I just want to thank you for him. I want to thank you for the truths in this word. And I ask you, God, to help me as as we've studied into this and we share the truth from your word, God, that it would be rightly dividing and also, Lord, that it would accomplish that which your word has set out to do. I thank you in advance for what you will do because you are the faithful and the yes and the amen of all of your promises in Christ. And to you, we give the glory and the honor and the praise. Amen. So as we continue again uh, with our second chapter of 2 Corinthians, what I will do is I'm going to read a little bit of the sections of the scripture, and then we'll spend a little bit of time in some commentary from the different sources that I've looked at. I'm using the David Jeremiah English Standard Version Study Bible, so I have a lot of comments from that. And then we have some from um, also using resources such as the Precept Awesome website as well. So we'll go into some of the commentary on this chapter as well. So let's continue where we were from uh, from the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. So... As we're going into this chapter, I like to always, when I'm doing Bible study, take a moment to look into the chapter before, because remember, these did not have chapter divisions in these letters. Uh, They were written as a whole letter, and it's great to always be reminded of the context going into that chapter, so we can always do a little bit of that as we go into this, this chapter, because it really does kind of start in verse 23 of chapter one. So let's read some section of the scripture starting from verse 23 in chapter one of second Corinthians. And we're going to read through chapter uh, two verses one through four. So starting in uh, verse 23, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? 
And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So, well, again, here we start with what is not a great chapter division, as Paul had introduced his current train of thought, as we saw in chapter one, verse 23. And he begins to explain to them why he had a change in plans to visit them. And again, since this chapter started with a four, anytime there's a four or a therefore, take that moment to look and see what it's there for. Dr. David Jeremiah states in his study notes here that, again, scholars believe there could have been as many as four letters to the Corinthians, and that what we see here is the fourth letter that we call 2 Corinthians. And while the letter mentioned may be lost, we see Paul's model of handling church discipline issues and his heart. First, what do we see here of the heart of Paul? We see an apostle, clearly the point person, shall we say, of the Corinthian church, yet he deeply feels the weight and pain and the process involved in church correcting and discipline. Again, in first, uh, in the chapter 1, verse 23, we see that first reason for the delay. As it says here, it was, quote, to spare them a painful visit. A bit of a woe moment to be read out loud in the congregation, right? You know, these letters were not private emails. These letters were read publicly. And when Paul tells them, it was to spare you that I didn't come, it's kind of like the proverbial, don't make me come down there that we give our kids, right? And if he had come as planned, well, it would have been a painful process for all involved. To Paul, the one who did not want to cause pain, to the one on whom the stern letter had been directed, and as the church as a whole. John MacArthur says the following comments about this section of verses, and I'm quoting here. Paul, who had already had a painful confrontation at Corinth, was not eager to have another one. We see that Paul gave time for the corrective letter to do its work and give the church time to address the issue for the sinner to repent. A godly leader will not shrink back from the work of a shepherd as outlined in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, which says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The leader will correct, but with love and concern for the unity, love, and testimony of the church. It has to be one of the hardest things for leadership to do and for the church to experience. Sin in the camp affects the whole camp. And that's something right there that we really should stop a moment and just reflect on a second. Any sin that we make room for, are comfortable with. No sin is ever only unto ourselves. Well, it also seems that correcting and rebuking are things that, quite frankly, 
the church of today thinks is not Christ-like behavior and that all blatant sin should be excused under a blanket of false grace and love. It seems that the parishioner of today really likes to be told how wonderful they are and how God wants to bless us, but not correct us. Paul's heart and mindset here is tender and tough. Paul's desire, as Warren Wearsby says, was that the church might obey the word, discipline the offender, and bring purity and peace to the congregation. Paul closes this section with, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. What a tender heart in the midst of a tough, confrontational, and personally painful situation. We can take some great cues here, should we and when we rub shoulders with a Christian brother or sister who may need correcting. Let all be done in love to guide not only the words we say, but the goal of what we say. The goal has to be correction to each other and to Christ, not just to see someone pay publicly for any sinful actions. Remember, this person here had directed personal, painful comments and slander to Paul. So think about that in context of how he wrote with anguish of tears. It's amazing to have that tender and humble heart when you're having to really deal with something that's a personal, painful situation like that. And when we encounter someone that we need to confront, I hope and pray that we learn to have an attitude like this. It is only by the grace of God as we determine that the glory of God is the primary purpose for what we do and how we act with each other. John MacArthur's commentary in this section states that that man in the church had confronted Paul with accusations that were taken from the false apostles and teachers in Corinth. And Paul was waiting for repentance from that man. And again, taking a moment to think about how Paul had, after he left, um, and there was an opportunity that took root for some painful slander against him to spread and having to hear that report from where he was and having to address it. It's no wonder that Paul says later in this same letter of his struggles that besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, Later in this letter, Paul will personally address the differences between himself, the genuine apostle, and the surface apostles. But here again, we see his amazing shepherd's heart. I believe the corrective nature of the letter they received was also addressing the tolerance of the false apostles and teachers in the church as a whole and their unchallenged accusations against Paul. That last verse in this section shows the mixture of pain he felt in having to correct, yet expresses such love and a leader who has this heart can be trusted. Moving on to section two, which is uh, titled in my study Bible, Forgive the Sinner, where let's read together uh, verses five through 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. 
For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Well, Paul begins this section with that gentle nudge that the one who had caused pain to Paul had in reality caused pain to them all. Therefore, the punishment or discipline that had been put in place by the majority was enough. Hearing that it had resulted in repentance and godly sorrow, there was now no need for continuing disciplinary actions. So thankfully, Paul's directives were followed and the offender was disciplined and to God's glory had repented. We see the first of the two reasons that Paul gives to forgive the offender. The first is so that the one who repented would not be overwhelmed with sorrow. The public rebuke was now commanded to be followed by public restoration and reaffirmation. How healing and beneficial for all to have a public restoration after public discipline. In verse 8, the word for love is agape, the unconditional love used of God for us. Now, verse 9 is interesting and reveals another reason why he wrote a stern letter, to test the Corinthians in their obedience. It more literally reads that I might know the proof of you. His directives for discipline was a test that the Corinthian church would submit to his apostolic authority, and thankfully they did. With so much division and slander, Paul needed to know that the church had not lost their ability to listen and heed his instructions and follow him as an apostle. Verse 10 shows that the Corinthians, that although Paul had endured much, he told them that his forgiveness would be included in theirs, again, displaying this ministerial heart. The phrase, for their sakes, may mean that they could see his example in leading the call for forgiveness, even when he was the object of the offense personally. Let that sink in. Now we come to verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Here we can understand one of the primary ways that the enemy of the church seeks to destroy and divide unforgiveness. Fostered hurts that are not subjected to the forgiveness model and command of Christ will bring division in your home, in your life, in your church. And here is where the ancient text touches our very lives right now. We need to be aware that Satan hates the church and he hates the saints of God and he is always seeking a foothold to divide and nothing is fuel for the fire like unforgiveness. It has a way of being justified so easily, doesn't it? Even more difficult, is a situation in which reconciliation is not possible due to unrepentance. If we have issues with unforgiveness, confess it now and get rid of it the same way you would a bomb. Let's see it as the tool of hell 
that it really is and determined to not let our hearts get hardened to the grace so freely given to us in Christ and with Christ as our example. Unforgiveness binds our own hearts and those who will be tainted by it. Like a satanic virus, it spreads and grows roots of bitterness that Hebrews 12, 15 warns against saying, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. Satan's method of operation often involves doubt, division, deception, and discouragement. And this situation in Corinth had elements of all of these. Let us pray and encourage each other to have soft hearts, quick to forgive, even as we are quick to see our own faults and errors, which by the way, let's start with ourselves before we ever have to correct anybody else. Okay. I know that will keep me busy enough. Well, after this difficult section, we come to one of the New Testament's most famous passages, Triumph in Christ. So let's read verses 12 through 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For where for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So here we hear a little bit more of Paul's turmoil as he, Paul waited to receive an update on the Corinthians from his ministry partner, Titus. What are the thoughts going over in Paul's mind as he's waiting to find the report from Titus? Did the Corinthians obey? Did the sinner repent? Would they believe and continue to believe these false accusations against him and follow after the false apostles? The mental unrest was actually keeping Paul distracted in his ministry. Perhaps this struck a note to the Corinthian church as they heard these words of the true care of a genuine shepherd. Paul then interrupts his narrative of his unrest to the reflection of being confident in God's leading even in this time of turmoil. But thanks be to God. What a great thing to say in the midst of our trials and disappointments, to trust that God is leading, even when, especially when we can't see it. Paul writes a very similar statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, where he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I reflect on the great trials that Paul had endured mentioned in chapter one of this great letter and humble to see how he disciplined his spirit to have conquering faith in the person and promises of Christ. What a great section of encouragement where it says, God, who always present tense and continually leads us in triumphal procession as through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It is comforting to know Oh, and verbalize that our Lord as our general leads us to victory as we follow him. 
I hope that encourages you here today. The imagery Paul is speaking here is like a Roman triumphal march after a victory. The captives who would become Roman citizens were marched in the front of the procession, and in the parade were garlands of flowers and incense bearers dispensing perfumes. The knowledge of God is the aroma which Paul had scattered like an incense bearer. And any time I put on perfume, I kind of think of this verse, and I pray that I would represent my Savior well and be a fragrance of Christ. But yet Paul goes on to say, not everyone likes the fragrance of Christ. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The one is like a fragrance of death and to the other, a fragrance of life. In that same Roman triumphal procession, there were also those who would be set free and there were those who would be put to death. The same thought was in 1 Corinthians 18, um, or Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, that same fragrance in that triumphal procession that announced freedom to those being set free would also be the fragrance signifying those being put to death of their impending doom. Well, Paul asked who's sufficient for these things. For we are not like so many as peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Commentator Homer Kent, Kent comments on this passage by saying, Others regard the answer to be, no one is sufficient if he depends on his own resources, which we'll see coming up in chapter 3. Certainly the religious peddlers are not sufficient, for they depend upon a personal sufficiency and selfish motivation. Only those who depend solely upon God for his sufficiency can hope to bear this heavy responsibility. So here the chapter ends with Paul comparing his ministry motivation and calling to those who had been carried away by the Corinthians with their persuasive speech. This segues into chapter three. So you're going to have to be here next week to see how Paul goes on with this thought. So here are some key takeaways from this chapter. First, good leaders lead firmly, but in love. Discipline must be done in love with unity and peace as the goal. But it has to be done with correction when it is needed to be done. Second, unforgiveness is a scheme of Satan in the church and in our lives as Christ followers with each other. Let's so be aware of it. Let's not be ignorant of the schemes of Satan and not let it gain a foothold. Ask God daily, is there any unforgiveness in me? And when you see it, recognize it, recall it what it is, repent of it, and not let it take a foothold in our life. Let us ever be mindful of the grace of God in forgiving us in Christ. Number three, no matter how our plans or circumstances change or not as we wish, the sovereign Lord is overseeing our every step and always leads us in triumph. Our general will lead us in triumph as we follow after him. When we have plans we can't see, we can't see the end of them. Please, let's call this verse of scriptures to mind and pray that out loud. Thanks be to God who will lead me in triumphal procession in Christ.
Lastly, be the fragrance of Christ to others in how we live and how we share the knowledge of Christ, realizing, well, it's spiritual warfare. And there may be those who, to those who are being saved and drawn to Christ, it is a call to life. To those who are rejecting the gospel and Jesus Christ, it is a reminder of their doom. Therefore, they're not going to be open arms and treat you with the love and respect that that kind of a message and fragrance should deserve. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. To God be the glory. And I pray that your study this week will be rich and again, as challenging as as these chapters already are to us. We pray that it helps you and me to walk in the truth of God's word. I hope your time is blessed in your discussion. Thanks for being here today.